What if I were to tell you that there was a house that instead of you taking care of it, it takes care of you? Would you think that that was something of a flight of fancy or something out of a fantasy novel? I'm here today to tell you that that is not a fantasy, but a current reality in today's times. Hi, my name is DJ Brule, and I'm here today to tell you about a new radical type of architecture called earth shipping. So to begin, an earth ship essentially is a type of architecture under the category of biotecture, which was coined by the guy um, named Michael Reynolds. Can you go back two slides? Yeah, it should start on that one. So Michael Reynolds is the architect that first devised this type of architecture, and he created this way back in 1972. So this isn't that new. This is a relatively old idea. However, it's been perfected throughout time and is now a more viable solution to creating a sustainable architecture. So he did have his license revoked, however. So when he went out there back in the 1972, he started building houses with beer cans and garbage that was left around. The government at that time didn't take very kindly to him doing that and actually showed up with armed guards to take away his architectural license. Don't know why they needed armed guards to do it, but they took it away because they cited it that it was breaking uh, many different code, building code violations and that he wasn't allowed to continue with his work. However, this did change in the future through many years of legislative lobbying. He actually was able to get the whole Earthship community that he now has created as something called a subdivision where they allow him to have lats building codes where he can build out of the material that he wants to build out of like beer cans and rammed earth. So one of the reasons that these buildings are so innovative and so sustainable is because they're not hooked up to the grid. They're completely off grid and they're off the electrical grid and they're off the water grid. And the reason it's able to sustainably be off the electrical grid is because it doesn't use any AC in the house. AC is what draws most of the power in our houses and is the biggest energy demand out of any sort of appliance that you're going to be using. So what this house does is it innovatively uses passive design to be able to heat and cool the house no matter what season or what time of day it is. The way it does this is through climate control. So the climate control is done first and foremost by having a large greenhouse that takes up the entire front of the house. The house is oriented in a south-north based orientation and the greenhouse faces south where the sun at the peak of winter solstice, when it's all the way at the bottom, is able to produce the most amount of light. What this does is this heats up the greenhouse area that's in front of the house. So during the winter, this greenhouse is used to help heat the house. And during the winter, and this is where it gets interesting, is it actually helps cool the house through the mass amount of heat that is coming through it. The way it does this is it has these vents up in the, up in the top right there. If you see the picture, there's vents in the ceiling of that greenhouse area. And then there's vents to the living area, which is behind the greenhouse. And what is done is 
it uses something called heat convection and advection to be able to do this. So in this graph at the top, the sunlight is coming into the greenhouse and is heating that greenhouse area up. What this greenhouse then does is has the heat rises out the top vents, it pulls in air from the rest of the house, which is in the back, the cooler area. So what happens is they have these piping that's piped through the underground of the house and the ground maintains an average temperature when you go deep enough of about 55 degrees. So it's rather cool air that is coming from the underground. So they have these tubes that come underneath it and then they come into the living area. When they come through the living area, it is being pulled through the suction of the convection that's happening inside the greenhouse. So this pulls this kind of circulatory system of cool air into the house and the hot air being extinguished out of the house via the top of the roof vents in the greenhouse. So it also uses what's called heat diffusion. So this is done through the rammed earth that's in the back of the house. So the rammed earth uses what's called thermal mass. This is a mass that's able to store thermal energy in it and that dissipates through a long period of time. So most of our houses today use insulation. Insulation is basically just air particles that cause the heat to be able to transfer slowly through the median in which they contain. So heat doesn't transfer through, through air very well, it transfers through solid material like steel, the best and out of a dense material. So instead of using insulation for this house, this house uses the exact opposite. It uses a thermal mass barrier to be able to cool and heat the house. And the way it does this is when the sun is at its equinox, uh, at the uh, solstice, the winter solstice, it is lowest and it's coming through the greenhouse into the main area of the house. And that main area, the exterior walls are created with dense rammed earth, so the super packed material. And what happens is the sun heats this up during the daytime and then disperses it at night when it gets rather cold. And in this graph up here, you'll see what's called uh, dampening and lad time. So the dampening effect, as you see right there, is the peaks between the internal and outdoor temperature. So you don't want these kind of spikes. So during the daytime and nighttime, you see these kind of wild, huge spikes that are happening uh, in the outside between hot and cold. We experience this in Arizona when we go through summer heat, 115 degrees to like 80 at night. We, we experience this huge dampening fluctuation. So what the dampening is, is how little the heights of those temperatures change inside the house. So that is the internal temperature. The blue line is the internal temperature and the red is the outdoor temperature. So the lad time is the difference in these peaks. So let's say during the daytime, it's really hot and you want it to be cool in your house. Well, the lad time and the way that this thermal mass works is because it cools after the fat of it being hot. So that is when the cooling is occurring. So you want that, you wanna see that. So during the daytime, it's really hot, you want it to be cool in your house. During the nighttime, it's cold, you want it to be hot in your house. So that's what the lad time is right there, is between the peak temperatures of the inside and outside of your house. So as I mentioned before, uh, it uses a kind of circulatory system to heat and cool the house. So the first step is the air comes in from the outside through the tubes in the back of the house. Right there, the back of the house is buried in mostly earth, 
and the exterior wall that supports the earth from coming in is the rammed earth wall that I was talking about that uses the dampening effect. So right here, they have vents that are placed right next to where you're going to do most of your living. So this one right here was placed by the couches. They have other ones that are placed in the master bedroom by where the occupants will be sleeping. And they have another one that's placed uh, in the kind of general living area, uh, dining room, sort of multi-purpose room that they had. And then eventually uh, the, the air will end up in the greenhouse at the very end of the cycle. And it cycles back through the air on the outside. So as I mentioned, it's completely off-grid, uh, not just electrically, but also it's off the water grid. And the way it's able to do this is because it contains a gray water and black water capturing system. So the airships are located in Taos, New Mexico. It's a high desert, so the rainfall averages aren't too much greater than here. They're a little bit better than here, but they're not the best in the world. So the best way is to collect rainwater and to be able to recycle that rainwater without much waste happening in the system. So at the top right there is a graph that kind of shows this whole system. So the roof is designed to capture the most, as much water as it can. The water goes into what's called a water cistern. So this cistern would be considered a a dirty water cistern. So this isn't one that you would be using for anything inside your house. And most of the reason is because rainwater, if you notice, isn't actually as clean as we would like it to be. A lot of uh, carbon molecules are able to latch on in the atmosphere and it rains down what's called acid rain. So it's not actually something you would want to drink straight from the cistern. So what the house does is it uses a series of carbon filters as well as reverse osmosis systems. After it goes through these filters, the water is then clean enough to be able to drink and use in your showers. After that, it is in the clean water cistern. So this cistern is primarily the water storage that you're going to have in your house. And the amount of water that you're going to have at any given time is going to be measured by the amount of water in the clean water cistern. So this cistern disperses water to various different systems in the house. Uh, it could go for drinking water, uh, water in your fridge, to shower water as well as toilet water. But generally, the way they use these systems is they don't like to use this clean water in something as uh, dirty as a toilet or a shower. So generally, it'll be washing dishes or hands and stuff that you need more clean water for. So after this fact, all that water that is put into those systems is recycled back into another series of carbon filters. So some houses just go to the carbon filters, but their ship is a special situation. They actually use this for the before mentioned greenhouse that is in the front. So this greenhouse contains various plants and um, plants that you're able to eat, consume, and plants that are just there for show. So what these plants do is they get this water after you wash your hands, take a shower, or any of the clean water that is used, and then this water is then run through these, the bottom of the roots of these plants. And usually this water is nutrient-rich, because when you wash the dishes or wash your hands, usually you're washing off uh, phosphorus or nitrogen, which is a fertilizer for plants and actually a great nutrient for them. So after it is washed through these plants, the plants actually clean out any sort of toxins or any sort of 
uh, contaminant that is in the water and clean it further. So that kind of gives it a first pass through a filter. And then it goes through a series of carbon filters, which then create the water to go right back into the cistern. But here's the thing. This system doesn't do what normal gray water systems, that would be a normal gray water system, would be to recycle it back into the cistern. But they don't like to use that much carbon filter. This is then used as what's called gray water. So this gray water will be used for the toilet or any sort of other thing that you don't need absolutely clean water. So the plants clean it to an extent. They don't perfectly clean it. I would say they don't clean it to the quality of water that I would like. I would, I would think because the city of Phoenix has 300 parts per million of other, um, other molecules other than hydrogen molecules, which is pretty high. That's why Arizona water is considered to be pretty disgusting, is because of its high uh, parts per million. So I would say this would be about equivalent to that after the plants filter it out and after the carbon filters. So it's not as efficient as a reverse osmosis, but because that system is expensive, you don't want to keep using it everywhere. So the point is, is to keep this water for other uses, such as the toilet. After it is used in the toilet, it is what's called black water. So this water is water that is going to be a net loss uh, overall. So this is the water that you're not going to put back on the gray water or you're not going to put in the cistern. It's actually going to be pumped out to an outdoor sewage treatment. The sewage treatment, what it does is um, it separates the solids from liquids and keeps the solids as fertilizer for the outdoor plants. So this goes to outdoor planting. So this plants that you're not going to be necessarily eating or using for any sort of means other than just for looks or for different sort of purposes other than consumption. So as I mentioned, it uses a gray water system. The, the airship that we're looking at Right there, see the blue container? That is where the clean water is coming from. And it has this tube inside of the airship. And that tube kind of shows you where your water levels are at. So I stayed in one of these airships a few years back. And when I stayed there the entire weekend, I didn't see the pipe, you know, the water in the pipe move at all. So it contains a lot of water. And I, I didn't. I didn't go easy on it. I definitely put the thing through its paces since I was trying to examine exactly how inefficient this house was. Now, it did rain the night prior, but it didn't filter all the way through the clean water yet. So the clean water um, was being reimbursed as I was using it. And as I said before, it's rich in carbon, such as phosphorus and nitrogen. And the phosphorus and nitrogen cycles are cycles that are uh, prevalent in natural ecosystems. So up here you see on the right and left are natural phosphorus and nitrogen cycles. So what this house does is it kind of mimics that sort of natural ecosystem with phosphorus and nitrogen cycles and uses it in a way that's beneficial to the occupants of the house. And right, at, right here at the bottom you see there's the uh, planters. So those pipes right there are the water I was talking about filtering through the roots. And so it, these, these roots sit in gravel, and then they go, they go down to a layer of these little, they have these little clay balls, and these clay balls are where the water median is being rushed from. So this is similar to clay balls that they use in the hydroponic system. So there's, they're, they're, they're what's called pH neutral. So they don't change the pH of the water at all. And 
that's beneficial when you're trying to use this water for something like a shower or uh, for flushing back into the system of your house. So sewage treatment, uh, as I said, it's a very basic unit and it's built out of sustainable materials such as uh, reused uh, tires. And they bury this in the ground for obvious reasons. And all this does is just separate your sewage and treat the sewage of your house. So you don't have to be hooked up to the grid via sewage either, and it's dealt with automatically. So it's hassle-free. It's something that people don't usually have to worry about. The owners don't have to do anything with this because it just takes care of itself for the most part. So energy production. So not only is it energy efficient with its ability to heat and cool the house passively, but it also only uses two photovoltaic panels on the front. Now, that's very little amount of solar panels that are needed. Most people, for their heated pools here in Arizona or their showers, need more solar panels than that. And the, one of the biggest reasons is because the largest energy consumption of the AC is non-existent. So the passive heating and cooling is what makes up for the lack of energy. Using the natural uh, sun in its solar capacity to change the conditioning of your air. And that's why it only needs two photovoltaic panels. This one also had one for the uh, solar water heater. So it also saved in that sense too. And that's all it needed. However, some of the other houses, since this is a large community, the house that I stayed in was a very generic model. Uh, a lot of the other ones have larger energy consumption needs. And for them, you can see that they have turbines, wind turbines, to be able to make up for some of that. So as I mentioned, solar power. Uh, people add extra solar panels right there. That guy wanted extra than what his house came with. So he built that little array right there that has solar panels on it. Now, a lot of these are tracking solar panels. So that's one that can pivot and follow the sun and change the angle of the solar depending on the seasons. So these have a custom style wind turbine. Now, there's two types of wind turbines that are most commonly used, vertical axis wind turbines and horizontal axis wind turbines. So the difference is the axis of rotation that is occurring. So vertical axis sits upright. So it's an axis that spins and the, the, the spinning is happening in a horizontal, but the axis of rotation is happening in a vertical plane. And the Earthships use a custom vertical axis wind turbine. You're most commonly associated with wind turbines is horizontal axis. So if you've ever driven to California and you've seen those large wind turbines, those are all horizontal axis wind turbines. So the axis of rotation is really high in that scenario. So in order to do maintenance on it or uh, upgrade it or build them, you have to build them extremely high up in the air to be able to do that. This is different. It uses a vertical axis. So you could build this on the ground. You could build this on the top of your house. And what scientists have noted is that if you build it about 50% the height of the house, it is most efficient to gather the wind that is coming over the profile of the house. So this don't, these don't need to be built very tall. I mean, if you have a one-story house, 50% of that is about five feet. So you're five feet off the top of the roof of your house is the most efficient way to gather as much wind as you can, given the profile of the building. So not only is it easier to get to the axis to be able to do maintenance on it and build them, but it's also far easier for them to operate in low wind speeds. These have been known to operate in wind speeds of five miles per hour or more. 
uh, the slower it is, usually the, the better it is actually, and it's because the surface area that is allowed. So if you look right here at this vertical axis, it has a large surface area. So it's a huge surface area for there to be uh, pressure per square inch of wind. So this can operate in relatively low wind speeds and it could operate in relatively high wind speeds with relative efficiency. So they use a custom type, they build their own. You could easily build your own in your backyard. They're extremely easy to build. They could be built out of recycled material and it could be built very cheaply. The most expensive part is uh, the axis that you're going to be building on. Other than that, your surface area could be built out of pretty much anything that you want it to be. It could be built out of old shirts. It could be built out of uh, plastic bags found in the ocean that shouldn't be there. So this can make use of recycled material and contaminants that have been put in our environment that could be upcycled. So not just recycled, but upcycled and reused into a new purpose. So we talked about there being energy produced through solar and wind, but this energy can't just be used at any sort of point in time. It needs a sort of energy storage and energy, energy conservation. So one of the ways that it actually conserves energy is it uses what's called smart appliances. And what these smart appliances do is they automatically shut off after non-use for X amount of time. So sometimes when you leave appliances plugged in, even if you're not using that appliance, it's still drawing power. So a lot of these smart appliances, what they do is they shut off automatically so no sort of current is running through the off system. And this is a way that you can help conserve power. And another way it does it is it uses this uh, advanced computer module that is inside of it. So this is hooked up to the grid. What this computer module does is it regulates the incoming uh, current and power and deals with it as it sees necessary. So if you're doing peak hours and you're using X amount of kilowatt hours, it's not going to allocate all that power to the batteries. It's going to be using that power as uh, general consumption during that period of time. The power during non-peak consumption hours will be allocated to go into the batteries. So this is an automated system that regulates the voltage and kilowatt hours inside your house and produces it in the most efficient way possible. So one of the other things is solar water heater, as I was talking about, another way of energy conservation that is being done. So energy saving appliances and solar water heating is some of the simple things that you can do to save energy on a daily basis. Actually, can you go back? I want to talk about something else there. So gravity battery. Okay, so th this is something that I, I, I hesitate to talk about. So a while back when I took this class, we had another class offered. I don't know, is it still the special projects? Yes. So a special project class that we had, we had to do a case study on something throughout the entire year. So this is something we worked through the entire year writing many papers on to talk about at the end of the year. So I did mine on what's called a gravity battery. The way a gravity battery works is all it does is it uses potential energy from a weight, weighted object that is dropped down a tube. So during peak energy hours, when energy is being consumed, very minimal energy goes to raising these batteries, but these batteries are in a tube and they have a pulley system. So when you're at, you're at night, you shut everything off, you go to sleep, the extra 
energy that is being produced through wind or during the daytime if you're not using much energy solar is then the excess energy is then pushed into raising these weights up so the potential energy of these weights are later used during peak energy uh, hours when you're using the most energy they're then let down and then that produces energy to keep up with the energy demand so you don't have blackouts or anything so it seemed like a good idea at first and just bear with me, it'll be a good idea in the very end, but what I'm going to say is pretty disappointing. So as far as large-scale macro use, these gravity batteries are, they're not practical. There's almost absolutely no way for them to be practical. So I ran the math, and uh, in that class we had a physics teacher, so I couldn't BS the math on her and the physics. So the amount of joules necessary to just power a simple house light or a simple AC unit is absolutely astronomical. So the amount of joules necessary, I won't even go into the actual numbers of how many joules necessary, but let's just say if you had a two-ton weight over a 200-foot uh, drop, throughout that drop, you would only be able to power, let's say, probably your refrigerator. With, with just that. So, I mean, think about that. You need a car-sized weight inside of a hole that goes down 200 feet in order for this to be practical use on a macro scale. So that might seem rather disappointing, but what I did discover is that on a micro scale, these are actually very successful and already being used in many different uh, third world countries where they don't have a power grid. Uh, a lot of people want lights in their house and they don't want to use the old school candles or kerosene lamps. So what they do is they use these gravity batteries. And these gravity batteries work on a single bulb basis. So what you'll do is you'll have a string or you'll have a pulley or you'll have something that lifts this light in the air. And then the weight will slowly drop down and it'll produce enough energy in an LED light bulb to be able to light a single room. So like a reading light or hallway lights or something that you're only going to be using for a couple hours. It's extremely efficient in that sense. So instead of going and turning on your house light, something that's on the grid of your house, you can instead use this gravity battery that you put the energy into to lift. So it doesn't require the extra energy uh, input from the house, but energy input from you yourself. And these could be rather efficient in that capacity. So in a micro scale, in a small scale, these gravity batteries are extremely useful. So for my studies, I discovered that they're nowhere near as efficient as they could be. Uh, they lose energy to mechanical advantage, and they lose energy to friction as well uh, from the weights sliding down these tubes, because usually these weights aren't uh, free-falling in the tube alone because of various reasons, because they can sway and move, and you don't want that happening because it'll cause damage. So they are efficient in that capacity. So another cool thing the airship does is it grows plants. So not only does it filter the water, these plants are also can be used for consumption. So the one that I stayed in had bananas at some point, but previous occupants obviously had all the bananas before I could have any. So mine was up there, you see right there, it was a banana tree that they had inside of it. And it produces a sufficient amount of bananas for someone in an occupant of the house. Like I said, I didn't get to experience this, but from what I saw, it looked like it could produce a lot. They just weren't ripened just yet. They weren't fully grown. And they contain a bunch of other food plants as well.
So other than just food consumption, it also uses air filtration. So back in the 70s, NASA did a study on air filtration plants, household common plants that filter out the air. Now, the reason they did this was for obvious reasons. If you know anything about the Apollo 13 story, uh, what happened is the oxygen tanks, when they went to go stir them to uh, further the oxidation inside the cabin, uh, what happened is it caused a spark to explode. And what the inhabitants of the, you know, the spacecraft, the astronauts, what they started to experience was carbon poisoning because the air filtration system was out. So NASA figured, well, it would be it would be smart and logical to have a backup in case the electronic air filtration units fail. So what they did is they studied household plants, common plants that you could put in your uh, capsule or space module or um, International Space Station that would be able to be a backup if, in case there was a system failure like there was in Apollo 13. And what they came up with is these. So you might recognize some of them. Uh, the spider plant is often uh, common because it doesn't require much water, and it can sit in a spot that doesn't have much sunlight. And what this does is it filters out the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as well as other uh, toxic gases that might be in your house. So a lot of these, what they do is they filter out formaldehyde or benzene. Formaldehyde is a substance that was used, if you've ever seen pink insulation in a house, that's when they had their formaldehyde back in the 70s. And this is found in a lot of our houses if it was built in the 70s. You don't look around Arizona. A lot of them were built during that time period where they did have formaldehyde. So this is the stuff that can cause uh, bronchial issues, breathing issues. So it's not great stuff that you want in your house. These plants are effective at filtering that out as well as a chemical agent called benzene, which is uh, also a common chemical. And a lot of these are found in the kitchen where a lot of cleaning chemicals use ammonia. So they also filter out ammonia as well, which can cause skin irritation as well as bronchial and breathing issues. So these plants effectively can filter out the air quality inside your house. So the greenhouse doubles off as that too. It can use air quality plants. The one I stayed in right here, see that one's not on the list, but I later looked it up and it's one that does filter out ammonia and it's a rather large plant based in the kitchen. So the air breathability, the air is actually largely improved. And you don't realize when you're sitting in your house, because there's not much to compare it to. But you know, if you ever go to the woods, you go, oh, that's, you know, it's great fresh air. And the reason being is because you have a lot of plants that filter out common chemicals that you find in our suburban living areas. And you don't notice this until you don't live in a house that has these purposeful air filtration units of plants. And the air quality I noticed is actually better and noticeable interestingly enough, even though I wouldn't have believed that, but when I experienced it firsthand, I noticed that the air filtration works rather well. And I got a few of these, uh, I got some of these plants from my room and they work relatively well. So, and a lot of these can filter out pretty large uh, square cubic feet. So you could get one plant per, I think it was per room, like 20 by 20 room. So, they're relatively efficient and useful, and you don't need that many of them. Uh, most of the plants are. Uh, most of the plants are. You, you could probably consume most of them yourself. So they're the, um, the you go back one. You see the one in the, uh, the right up here? Mm -hmm. That one right there? 
that one's really common in people's kitchens. It was in my kitchen for the longest time, and I didn't understand why until I saw this, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's why it's commonly used in the kitchen. And yeah, this, these plants are mostly non-toxic, so uh, animals aren't really affected by any of these. So, and they're chosen like that purposely, obviously, because you didn't want plants that add to the toxin if you're trying to filter out toxic material. You can go to the next. So as well as air, um, air filtration, it also uses food. Now, there's a documentary about these airships called Garbage Warrior, and it's narrated and talked about by Michael Reynolds, the guy who created it. And in this documentary, he shows what is called a aquaponic system in one of the houses. So this wasn't in the common unit, but this was in a few of the units themselves. And the way an aquaponic system works is it uses a relationship between fish and plants to be able to produce a system that gives you fish to eat as well as plant material to eat. And how this works is in this graph right here is a very simple uh, modular version of, of this. And the way it works is that it has plants in the top. So this water is pumped from the fish tank and it runs through the bottom of these roots. And as I talked about earlier, there's a lot of times plants can filter out toxic material and they can also add oxidation to the water that goes through the fish. So as you know, uh, in a lot of fish tanks, you see those bubbles, that's for oxidation. So you gotta oxidize the water for the fish to be able to survive. So this helps with the oxidation It also helps with a lot of the fish that are put in here eat some of the plant material that drops through it. And again, this plant material is oftentimes uh, enriched by nitrogen and phosphorus. So the excretion from the fish is then pumped back up into the top, which gives nitrogen um, to the plants. And so it's kind of the symbiotic relationship. And what these systems do is they reach what's called an equilibrium. So it takes about a year to reach an equilibrium, but that basically means that it's a self-sustained ecosystem that doesn't contain any sort of different input, material input other than solar input. So material matter is uh, indefinitely uh, recycled through the system, and the only thing that is lost is solar energy through the system, which can be added through just leaving it out in the sun or having a solar light that is able to do this. And once it's reached this equilibrium, you can then start taking little bits out of this system that are, are system multiples, I call them. So it's when the system starts to exceed its equilibrium. So when it starts to produce too much fish for it or too much plants, this excess can be used and sapped off slowly by the occupants or the owner that wants to use this. So you can use some of the, these plants that will be grown are vegetables, they'll grow, uh, and a lot of times they'll have uh, bluegill or tilapia inside these systems. So little by little, you can take certain percentages of the system and it'll still maintain this equilibrium. So it's basically a self-sustaining ecosystem that gives you a product that can continue on without much material input into it. Uh, a good example of this is I have in my house a ecosphere, so it's an enclosed ecosystem, and what it does is it has these little mini shrimp, and these little mini shrimp eat the algae that grows in the system. The algae then thus eats the excretion from the shrimp, so it's a self-sustained ecosystem within on itself, and material matter is exchanged, and all you need to do is put it in a little bit of sun, and that's it. I've had it for about two years 
and I hadn't done anything with it. The, the best pets ever. You don't have to do anything. Just sits out in the sun, no watering, and it's completely enclosed. And that was also a system that was invented by NASA engineers. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, uh, they're called ecospheres. Uh, really highly suggested as kind of a fun case study or something to have in your room as kind of a testament to the ability to an environment to reach an equilibrium and recycle material matter with only thermal energy being required as input. So the building materials, the thing that first got Michael Reynolds in trouble for even trying to attempt to build these advanced houses. So at first, it was very crude. He built out of beer cans, and I'll be honest, the houses looked like crap back when he first started doing it. Not something I would have lived in. Definitely looked like some sort of uh, crazy hippie stuff. Uh, that's, the way, that's kind of the way people view it. Uh, it was crazy hippie living out there, but it evolved into so much more than that. He started using more advanced materials, and he started using what's called rammed earth. Have you guys talked talk about it? a little bit, yeah. So, you know a little bit about rammed earth is that it's tampered down just material and you can use the indigenous uh, material that is excavated for your foundation. So when you're building a foundation in your house and you want to excavate material, you can use that excavated material to later build your exterior walls. And what he also does to improve and make this speed up this method is he uses rammed earth tires. So if you've ever seen on the news these big tire places, uh, I think they're like tire yards, I'm not sure what the actual name is, but they're always catching on fire for some whatnot reason. And one of the reasons is because no one knows what to do with these tires. They just sit there, they're hard to recycle or break down. So what he does is he takes them off the hands of these uh, tire yards and uses them to pack in dirt. So he just takes the tire, places it, and then starts packing in the dirt, rammed earth into it. And it helps contain this stuff, and it helps uh, speed up the method of building. So it's really fast to build, and anyone of any skill level can pick up and start building an exterior wall using this method. And that produces that thermal mass, and it also produces a massive amount of structural stability within the walls. So not only can you support a lot of weight on these walls, exterior walls, but it also helps with the passive heating and cooling as well. And these tires are usually free. Sometimes they'll even pay you to take it off the hands of the tire yard that contains it. So it's an upcycle, uh, reuse of a product that is no longer usable. And that is a problem right now because of there's nowhere to put them. <laughs> there's nothing to do with them. It's hard to break them down. And if you break them down and burn them, then that's another contaminant that's added into the atmosphere. So this is a way to make good on using a material that is what is seen as useless, but now is given renewed life. And one of the criticisms that I've heard is that these tires produce off-gassing. So that's another thing. I don't know if you guys have talked about off-gassing yet. A little bit today. Okay, so off-gassing comes off of some of these tires. Now, the way they deal with it is what you're seeing here, this tire wall, isn't the end product. Is they, they put on this sort of plaster-type material, at the end of it, uh, you see a lot of like adobe homes around Arizona that have it, and they put this material over it, and this holds in any sort of off-gassing that might come off the tires and contains it. So it's not something in, that is of worry or concern. And if it was, if a little bit did get through all that uh, concrete or adobe-type material, then the plants would effectively filter it out. So it's not something that 
I think is a really good criticism of it. I think it's a great material that is reused. So not only does he use that in its interior walls, he uses uh, old beer bottles or soda bottles. And you see that right here in this beautiful wall right there. So what he does is he, he cuts these in half and then pieces the two halves together with duct tape and then places it into this wall. And the concrete is then poured in between it. So this wall uses 75% less concrete material because of the recycled material that is being used in it. So it uses very little concrete or mortar to be able to construct a wall. And they're usually interior walls because, as I mentioned before, we want to use uh, thermal dampening or thermal mass. And these are exactly not that. They're like insulation because they have the air particles in the middle. So they're used in an interior way. So... And you see up there too is some of the ones can be used in like a garden system, a raised bed garden or uh, a type of greenery area that you might have on the outside of your house. And it's used to rather um, beautiful effects. They look rather nice for something that is recycled bottles. So this is a little quote from Michael Reynolds himself, basically talking about how the engineers and architects thought he was absolutely crazy when he started building out of this material. And that he was kind of shunned from the architectural and engineering community after his license was taken away, as well as his reputation was actually kind of tarnished by other engineers calling him absolutely crazy for using this stuff. So speaking of him being crazy, the most renowned architect of all time used a more primitive method of this. Up here in Taliesin West, has anyone been? No, no one's been. Oh, you, you've, you've been to Taliesin West? Well, it's worth a visit. It's not very far from here, and it's an extremely beautiful example of sustainable architecture built back, way back in the day. I mean, he built this thing in the 50s when there wasn't even any sort of main roads or hospitals nearby, and there was no air conditioning when he built this thing. And it's built out of the indigenous material because there was no infrastructure to be able to transport the material to build this house that he has, which is not just a regular house, but it's a massive complex. It's a college, too, that he actually brought to there. And Frank Lloyd Wright used the indigenous rocks, and he placed it in a formwork and then poured the concrete in it using, again, 75 to 80 percent less concrete within his house. This also did the same effect. It produced a thermal mass that was able to passively heat and cool the house during the summer and during hot hours. So as crazy as Michael Reynolds is, obviously he's not that crazy because Frank Lloyd Wright did this way back in the 50s and he's the most renowned architect of our time. I mean, how many other architects could you name? Everyone pretty much knows who Frank Lloyd Wright is, but he used this crazy, uh, somewhat crazy method according to the other architects and engineers. So. I, I do suggest, if you, haven't, if you haven't been there, I really do suggest during the winter taking a trip up there. It, you can do tours of it, and it's absolutely beautiful, the building, and it blends in perfectly with the environment. When you're coming up to it, you're seeing all these ugly new house, houses that are built, and then you see his hidden away back in the desert using the natural surroundings as a sort of form of biomimicry to blend in. So absolutely beautiful. Uh, really cool experience, and the building methods, as primitive as they were, are advanced for today. And he's one of the first organic, sustainable architects, I would say, that was popular. 
So as I was talking, um, Talias and West is environmental profile, so the Earthships have a low environmental profile. If you see right here in the picture, you can't even see one of the houses. There's a house there. If you drive around the other side, you'll see that there's absolutely a house facing that direction. You just can't see it because the back of the house is buried by the natural indigenous landscape. And when this landscape is put back is oftentimes they'll put the plants right back on the landscape and preserve the environment as it was. So you see here, even he built some of these in the woods. Even in the woods, they have rather low environmental profile, even though you have the large windows that are kind of an eyesore. Even then, they still blend in than most uh, modern-day housing communities do. And you see some here, right here, up there. They've shaped the house in such a way that it fits the profile, the background of the mountains. So the profile of the house is taken into account to fit into the environment in a way that is less of an eyesore to everyone looking at it. So when you're driving up on this community, when I first drove up on it, I didn't think there was a community here because I couldn't see half the buildings. But the more you drive through it, the more you start to see these buildings built into the environment in such a way. So it's a really cool method and it's really cool um, architectural style that is used called biomimicry. So these houses work in any climate. They don't just work in Taos, New Mexico. They are tailored specifically and built to every sort of different environment there are. Now, there's factors taken in like surface area of thermal energy input through the greenhouses. So that is a variable that will change within the house to be tailored to a different environment. So here, for example, uh, counterintuitively, you would actually have a larger greenhouse because then that produces a larger vacuum effect to be able to pump in the cool air. So it's kind of a counterintuitive thing, but here you would calculate the surface area that would be able to most efficiently produce the amount of vacuum pressure to bring in as much cool air as possible to keep a house such as a house in Phoenix actually cool. And so these are built pretty much everywhere. There's ones in Texas, Mexico. Uh, there's even ones all the way up in Canada where it gets really cold. So they're specifically tailored. And these same systems that work for Taos, New Mexico also work in a different capacity in any sort of environment that these houses are built in. So they're relatively versatile and can be built almost anywhere, which makes the design a rather kind of true and tested um, design that is used. So quality of living is often something that isn't talked about too much as, well, as far as architecture goes or as far as construction goes. Uh, it's a relatively underrated part of uh, architectural design. So quality of living is the improved quality that an inhabitant has um, produced passively or actively through their house. So one of the reasons it improves the quality of living is because it produces all these things. You don't have to worry about utility bills. You don't have to worry about as much food bills. If you, do your, if you construct your house right, you could have as much food as you need, especially if you're a vegan or a vegetarian. Perfect. This house can easily deal with the amount of food consumption that you have and be a sustainable unit within itself. So as I was talking about the ship before, of it being a self-sustained ecosystem, these houses can effectively become kind of the same thing too. So the way it does increase the quality of living is that you don't have to be out struggling, stressing over about how much money you have, if you're going to be able to pay your energy bill, if your lights are going to go out. All that stuff is taken off your shoulders as the house provides that for you. 
So it improves the quality of living as far as that goes. And stress can be a large factor in today's modern societies with money and with maintenance of your house or if you're going to lose your house. So this is something that greatly improves the quality of living, as well as could relieve how many hours a week you are working. So because that extra cost is taken off of your shoulders, you don't have to worry about uh, if, if you lose your job or something happens, what are you going to do? You have your house to fall back on. So that's kind of one of the ways that it improves the quality of living. So that's kind of a more uh, esoteric way that it improves the quality of living. A more practical way is by having those air filtration plants, by having a house that has less toxins in it, um, a house that is more natural environment for us to live in. So a lot of times modern architecture could be rather rigid and out of touch with our natural instincts to live in an organic type of environment. So this is something that improves the quality of living in that area as well. And when I was there, I could tell that it was kind of a, a, a kind of little tight-knit community. Everyone there waved. It was really happy. And everyone there seemed like they were having an overall good time. So the quality of living was kind of materialized in the community coming together and being more friendly. So Michael Reynolds says cities are a dangerous place, and a place that's out of touch with human nature and are a, a place that are rather hazardous to us as humans. They're, they're rigid, they're unmoving, and humans are precisely not that. So you might think it's a little weird that you are kind of an organic compound walking around these concrete uh, buildings and concrete infrastructure that we have, and the airship's kind of are an answer to that rigid concrete environment that you usually see in cities. So you might be asking, okay, these are grand and all, but you were saying before that you can't build these everywhere. Well, Michael Reynolds went through all this legislative trouble. It took him 11 years to be able to get his bill passed for him to create a subdivision, which made it kind of a... Um, an experimental ground to be able to experiment with building materials. Now, the funny thing is, and he notes in his documentary when he's talking to legislators, that near this place is where a lot of the nuclear tests were going on. And when they first did the nuclear test, scientists weren't fully convinced that the nuclear explosion would even stop. They thought it would keep going. And he brought up, if you guys are able to create the risk of detonating a nuclear atomic explosion in this desert, why can't I go through the risk of creating a couple of buildings that aren't up to code to be able to create experimental new buildings for people to live in? And so his subdivision is considered kind of an experimental ground now for architecture, which makes perfect sense if you try to relate it to atomic explosions that are happening in the desert. And so what he did is after his legislative battle, he came up with this map right here. And this map shows green areas where the codes are relaxed enough to be able to build such a building and build out of the materials that you have. So if you notice in Arizona, all those counties happen to be mostly Native American. So that's their, their building codes are a lot less lax than our federal governments and our state government. And so they're able to, you're able to build an Earthship style building in those areas and build out of rammed earth. If you try to build that here in our suburbs, would, you would completely fly in the face of all the codes that are currently in place. So the red areas are where that you absolutely cannot because the rules are strict enough. Understandably, the coast of California is all off limits. It would be a perfect place, but seismic uh, concerns 
are what drives the code to be strict, too strict to be able to do that. So you're not able to construct it in those kind of areas. But all the white areas are where it's kind of in between. So it's possible to be able to construct something using some of the methods that are used in the airship. Not all of them, but enough where you could probably build out of rammed earth or you could probably build out of bottles that are inside your walls. So you can't completely be off the grid, but you can partially be off the grid and use some of these systems in your house. You could even use these in retrofits in some of the houses that are currently already built. So it doesn't even have to be a new house. It could be a house that has yet to be built that uses some of the same systems. So as far as laws and regulations goes, uh, as I was talking, there were strict building laws. But what I did find interesting is, uh, I don't like to bring too much politics into it, but I found this interesting thing from uh, Senator Bernie Sanders back in the day in Vermont. It's a letter um, um, talking about a couple that built an earthship. So Vermont is one of the places that you can actually build one of these, and it's because of uh, progressive legislators that create relaxed building codes to allow for sustainable building material. Now, this is something that when you're, when you're talking about building your sustainable cities or you're talking about wanting to do something sustainably, this is something that's rather overlooked is the current building codes and regulations don't allow for radical architecture or radical systems to be built. So this is something when you're doing your projects, your green city projects, you might want to think about what are the legal ramifications of the idea I have. This is a great idea, but is this something that I can legally implement uh, given our local codes and regulations? So this is something to definitely look into. Definitely, you want to probably get a little more political when it comes to this. This is something we never see in any debates. We never see any politician bring up. And it's such a critical aspect of our life that needs to change. The architecture around us has to radically change in order for us to actually fully implement a new sustainable, radical, system of living. So definitely an overlooked concept. It's interesting to look at our local codes and regulations and the fight to try to change it is non-existent and it should be. And I, so I urge everyone to look into the local codes, your idea. If you have an idea that you're like, why isn't this being used? Well, probably because it might be illegal or the codes, it might violate the code. So this is something to definitely look into. If you want to have a gray water capturing system, you want to start radically changing your living situation, definitely look into the local codes and reg regulations. You can write letters to local senators, local congressmen, and you'd be surprised how responsive some of the local legislation can be. And a lot of this can be changed at the local level. So all it needs is the want to do it, the, the want at the local level to want something radical. So I'm not going to sit here and say that this is perfect because it's, it's not. It's absolutely not perfect. It's been developed from 1972. And as I said back then, I thought the houses looked like crap, not something I would have ever wanted to live in. However, they've improved vastly since that time. Over the years, Michael Reynolds has rather perfected these houses. The one I stayed in was really nice. It was a really nice state, and it's a state I did not expect. I was expecting what a lot of the uh, established um, establishment kind of thought is. So the news media and other sort of media that comes out about these houses kind of looks at it as it's, it's a hippie commune 
type of thing is kind of the um, reputation that it gets. Undeservedly is the reputation, but that's kind of how it comes off. And part of the reason is because of the first criticism I have. The way Michael Reynolds presents himself and presents the ideas and the people living in the community kind of supports this idea that it's some sort of crazy hippie commune idea. And I think that's stylistically kind of his problem. That's not in practice or the function is not the problem, but it's the problem with how he kind of presents himself and how he talks. And, and I feel like if he really wants to get the word out there, he wants to get people to live in these, you know, normal people that are in your suburbs. And think about people living in style homes, the granite countertops, they're going to go, well, I don't want my granite countertops. Like, I'm not going to live in this crap. Like, it's, it's not luxurious enough for me. And I think part of the problem is the way he presents that. Because when you go to these houses, they are actually rather luxurious. The stay was really nice. It was, it was just as good as any middle-class home uh, family home that you would see in the suburbs here. It was not any worse. Uh, the living was just as good. So th that's my criticism is that he kind of, kind of just the way he comes off can be a little off-putting to some people. And another thing is, is about his personality. He, over, he tends to over-exaggerate a little bit in his Garbage Warrior documentary. He tends to talk these houses up a little too much and kind of embellishes some of the numbers and abilities of this house. So I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that these things are perfect and that they're the end-all solution, but they are a path to a better solution. It's the right direction to take if you want a sustainable building. So that, that was some of the criticism. Another one, and this is something that could be easily fixed, was there was too many bugs inside of the house. So if you're not a fan of sleeping next to a giant black spider, like I'm not, then this is probably something you're not going to be a huge fan of because you're trying to sleep in the uh, master bed and there's giant spiders walking around. And part of this has to do with the fact that it is built out there in undeveloped kind of areas. So buds are in that area more because it's less developed. But another reason, and what I noticed, is I looked and they, have, they didn't have door sweeps on the exterior doors. Door sweeps are extremely cheap extremely easy to install, so it's an easy fix. I don't, I don't understand why they didn't have them, because, because of the way the greenhouse is designed, you have double doors to go through before you get to the greenhouse, and another door before you get into the living area. So there's no excuse that there should be any sort of buds, uh, um, that amount of buds getting into your house in that way, because you should just be able to have door sweeps. And as I was talking about before, there was the vent areas that vent in the air, those could have screens. They didn't have screens for some reason. So these are easy fixes that could be done to this house. These are something that if you went and bought one or went and stayed in one, you could even take, they even have, um, they even have strips you could put under your door that you just buy at like uh, Home Depot or Ace Hardware that are like $10 and you don't have to install them. You just put them underneath your door and it's an extra door sweep. So that was a criticism I had, uh, easily fixed criticism. So this is something for, uh, for us new architects, uh, people have ideas, people that want to do sustainable housing, is that these can be improved upon. And that's the whole great thing about this idea, is that anyone can improve upon these designs or these concepts and actually have themselves a nice, sustainable house. So one of the quotes I go to is, despite all the criticism, this is a fantastic idea, and it is a fantastic design. And in the words of Michael Faraday, nothing is too crazy to be true, given it is in line with the laws of nature. And that's all this house does, is it just examines the laws of nature and uses them to be beneficial to occupants 
and a house and in a sustainable community. So this part is kind of a short kind of a short preview of what I do in my podcast. So uh, a little bit of background information about me. Um, I usually do this at, the, at this part because this is when I do a little shameless self-promotion. So um, I'm a structural engineering drafter for a company called Gannett Fleming. We work on projects such as the light rail or the sky train that was being built at Sky Harbor, as well as some of the uh, terminal rehabilitations that we've done at Sky Harbor as well. So I've worked on rather large structural projects. So that's kind of my background in credibility is I, I would consider myself an amateur architectural consultant slash architect. Um, but what I do professionally is uh, structural drafting and engineering. So a lot of my experience and a lot of what comes from me examining the house comes from my background in structural engineering. So what I've noticed, though, in our industry, and I've seen firsthand, is that our industry is, as far as architectural and engineering industry goes, is a little obsessed with deadlines and profits to actually do anything radical. Our company claims to do sustainability, but our sustainability is so limited that it's a, it's a joke compared to any sort of radical change that needs to occur inside the structural and engineering and architectural community. So what I've noticed is that a lot of projects I work on, our company is a little more obsessed with font size than actual building, which is absolutely crazy and it's infuriating to me to see these kind of new designs that are going on and we're worrying about our font size on our building instructions, which is absolutely crazy to me to worry about something so trivial as font size. In the meantime, where you have a building that has immense waste, uh, immense uh, misuse and allocation of resources, and we have, our, our company doesn't even, we're a structural company and no one's even heard of rammed earth in it. So the problem is, is that it's stuck in its times. It's stuck by people saying, this is the way we've always done it, this is the way we've always done it, and the way to change that is by having people straight out of college come to do it. So our company has been really big on getting people straight out of college. And they're really impressed by this new generation of forward thinkers because we're not stuck in the way, oh, we've always done it this way, we've always done it this way, so we should always do it this way. It's a really poor way of thinking and it's a way that does not advance us as a race and it doesn't do any good as far as creating a radical new system. So what I came up with, being as disappointed in my industry as I've been, is I came up with a new style of architecture called fractal architecture. What this is, is it uses fractals to drive the design. So what a fractal is, is a self-similar pattern that repeats in on itself. So these fractals are evident in nature. As you see right here, this one's called a Fibonacci sequence. And the geometry and mathematics of the Fibonacci sequence perfectly match the geometry of something like a galaxy, as well as something small as a helix in our DNA. So fractal is something that is intrinsic into the natural ecosystem. So what this house does is it uses uh, fractals to describe a complex dynamic system to be able to fit in unison with the natural ecosystems of Earth. So this is similar to the systems that are used 
in inside of our um, Earthships that I was talking about, but this is far more advanced. This uses complex mathematics to be able to describe a complex dynamic system. So examples of complex dynamic system are things like an ecosystem. So an ecosystem might seem like a rather simplistic kind of thing, but there's so many variables that there are innumerable amount of variables that happen within a complex dynamic system. So to be able to produce a house that fits in unison with one of these systems, we must first understand the complexity of the system itself. So what this does is it uses chaos theory mathematics. Now, have any, any of you heard of chaos theory before? No? Okay. Well, I'll give you a short explanation of what it is. So chaos theory deals with systems that are inherently chaotic. So a weather system is something that will be inherently chaotic. That's why it's almost impossible to predict one of them. And the reason is, is because the amount of variables are innumerable. So if you've ever heard of something called the butterfly effect, what the butterfly effect comes from is a theory in mathematics that a butterfly flapping its wings in sepsis can cause a hurricane in Florida. That seems a little crazy, but it's not. And the reason being is because tiny little minuscule changes of air particles and water particles in the air can decide whether a tornado hits here, or hits there, or a hurricane hits Florida, or if it hits North Carolina. These variables seem impossible and innumerable to calculate. Chaos theory deals with calculating the innumerable. And what it does is it uses quantum computing and advanced computing uh, simulations to be able to produce a system that is otherwise seen as a chaotic system. So these chaotic systems might seem like they are chaotic and goes with the name of chaos. However, these systems are not chaotic. These systems are calculable. These systems can be predicted. We just have so many variables that it's almost impossible to us to perceive a ability to find out what a complex dynamic system is doing. And this is one of the reasons that our buildings are so out of touch with our natural ecosystems is because they're not able to be built in unison with a complex dynamic system due to our misunderstanding of how the system works or our simplistic understanding of how the system works. So what fractal architecture does is it uses this chaos theory um, theorems and mathematics to be able to calculate the environment that is being built around the house. So fractals are not something that are not used very much. These are used in everything. So fractals are everywhere amongst us. And the reason being is because it's intrinsic to our natural systems. It's intrinsically built in somehow. Now, the reason isn't exactly known why this is intrinsic to it, but it is. Because if you look around, you see as big as a galaxy is a Fibonacci sequence. Right here, uh, DNA helix is another Fibonacci sequence. And right here is one of the early organisms. Those were around during the Cambrian period 450 million years ago. Fibonacci sequence is being used within it. So the Fibonacci sequence is relatively simple. And all it is is math that is exponentially built on one another. So for example, you'll start one, one, and then the next mathematical sequence would be two. You add up the previous number to the new number and you get three. Then you add the three to the two and then it keeps going and building on one another. This is what's called a fractal, which is a self-similar pattern that repeats in on itself. So the interesting thing is, is that when you calculate this pattern, 
and you simplify it down to its um, bare minimum form by, square, by getting the square root of the numbers that are equal to the previous number sequence, what you get is 0 0.8161. So what's interesting about this number is that this number is used in a lot of things. We found this number everywhere within the universe as natural ecosystems. So as on a micro scale, it's on a macro scale as it is intrinsic to the formation of spiral galaxies. So this isn't something that is just, it's just for a few things. This is something that's intrinsic to the very essence of creation. So if, for example, during thermal cooldown period after the Big Bang, there was a period of cooldown where uh, hydrogen gas became ionized, which is which created the type of material that we're familiar with. So after the fight between matter and antimatter occurred during the Big Bang and regular matter won out, there was this period of ionization. Now, until then, the cooldown ratio and the rate of cooldown was a Fibonacci sequence. So it's very intrinsic into the creation of our universe as well as universal systems that are created after that. So this is something very interesting to look into. So if this is the driving force, if fractals can explain things as the Big Bang uh, way back in the day when it happened, then it can be used to also explain eco, um, natural systems like the ecosystem that have evolved out of that. So everything has evolved from that sequence that has happened. And this deals with chaos theory because it's what's called entropy. Entropy is when a, a state goes from order to disorder. So entropy is really critical in looking at the design of these buildings because of the way everything goes from a state of simplicity to complexity. So during the singularity, when there was before the Big Bang, there was just one single form of matter. And that singularity, it was a simple state. It became more complex during the state of ionization and the formation of galaxies. So after this happened, the processes of fractals were then put in place. And a lot of our natural systems, like you see right there, weather system hurricane is a Fibonacci sequence. Uh, the plants, some plants are a Fibonacci sequence and other sort of fractals. So not everything's a Fibonacci, but everything, the more complex they get, the different kind of fractal they are. So Speaking of chaos theory, one of the most simple concepts is the Lorenzo attractor, or Lorenz attractor. It was made by a guy named Lorenzo, so it was called the Lorenz attractor. And all this is, is a simulation you see right there. So take, for example, you have uh, a pendulum, a two-pointed pendulum, and you start swinging that pendulum around. The path that the pendulum takes in a geometric space seems rather random at first, but over time, as all the variables are taken up by all the range of motion that the pendulum has, so if I were to swing this around in a random sort of sense, and you were to see the path on like the whiteboard, you would see what looks like a randomly chaotic path. But after every variable is exhausted, there's only so many rolls of the dice, so to say, that you could have of that. So that pattern that seems rather chaotic becomes simplistic. And now what this is, the lens attractor, is exactly that. And at first, when you run this simulation, it looks chaotic and then evolves into a state of order 
like right there. So this goes counterintuitive to the state of entropy that we mostly see in our universe. And the reason is, is because as complex as a system sees, it's derived from a simplistic system, simplistic variables. So the amount of variables that can be exhausted are not innumerable, even though they might seem innumerable to us humans, because we have a limited capacity to see things uh, fourth dimensionally. And a lot of that has to do with our generally short lifespan, so to speak. Because relatively, if you look throughout the years, our lifespans are relatively short. So it's hard for us to see this. And what the, the architecture that I'm interested in doesn't use geometric. So geometric fractals are what we normally see. Those are the kind of fractals that you're used to seeing. And those fractals are geometric in their shape. And they occur in three dimensions. And they occur in what's called, what's called phase space. So right here. Every variable and possible outcome of that pendulum swinging occurs in what's called a third dimensional phase space. So this is a geometric phase space, and this is something that we can kind of relate to on our, on our level of understanding. What fractal architecture delves into is what's called fourth dimensional phase space. So this is a fractal that occurs over the course of the fourth dimension instead of the third dimension. So it's something that occurs with the coefficient of time being added to the equation. So most equations you see have um, a coefficient of just three dimensions. This one right here, because of the very nature of the way it runs, it runs in third dimensions, but it can only be realized through fourth dimensional use. So that's after the period of coefficient of time has been added to the fractal. And the way this all ties back to architecture is that you can use these fractal theorems and uh, fractal equations to be able to look at things like solar patterns, weather patterns, ecosystem factors such as how many given plants, how many given predators, how many given prey are in each, each ecosystem and how our kind of changing of that ecosystem affects that. So when we look at climate change, we oftentimes look at one dimension of that and that's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You have to also mention deforestation, uh, urbanization of natural ecosystems, destruction of natural ecosystems through different chemical imbalances, different material input and outputs that we do, uh, trash that we take and put into the natural ecosystem. Uh, lately, I don't know if you've seen the story, there was a whale that showed up with 80 bads inside of its stomach, dead on the beach. So that's something that is going to have ramifications throughout the environment that we can't yet understand. And the reason is, is because we don't understand the exact complexity, complexity of that ecosystem. And that's another factor that we use to change the environment. We virtually do what's called terraforming. Cities are something that's out of touch and they're their own biome now. Cities are effectively created their own biome of monoculture plants that are within them. And that vastly changes and has effects on things that we can't know the ramifications of exactly. So we don't even really know the exact destruction that we're doing to these environments. So fractals and fractal architecture deals with trying to change that misunderstanding we have. So as I said before, in nature, it's pretty intrinsic. Uh, it's intrinsic on the micro scale. It's intrinsic on the macro scale. So if you were to look at this, would you think that's a tree or would you think that's a river? Well, they both derive from the same fractal pattern. It's hard to be able to tell which one that actually is. And what's funny is that this one right here is actually a river. This one right here is actually a tree. 
They look relatively the same, and that's because the same processes go into it. So if you were to take a hose in your backyard, you had just a dirt patch, and you were to run the hose and look at the natural erosion from that, that pattern would be the same as a giant river, like the Amazon River or something, looking on it at a macro scale. So the same processes that happen at a micro level happen at the macro level as well. And this is why the house is a micro level thing that is built in unison with something that's a macro level, such as a community or a city. So the scalier factor of this is irrelevant because the same processes that are in the small scale apply to the large scale as well. So this is something that fractal architecture looks into. So fractals in architecture is not a new thing. It's, I can't take credit for saying this is completely my idea because it's not my idea. I just came up with the name fractal architecture for the most part. This has been used in ancient Greece. They've used the Fibonacci sequence in their architecture. And you see right here, there's the uh, Parthenon. The Parthenon's configuration actually uses that. And it's because they call it a, a spiritual ratio or, um, well, there's another name for it. But it's, it's, it's a ratio that they, um, or sacred architecture, they call it, or sacred geometry, if you've ever heard of that. And that's what the ancients believed, is that there was kind of this mysticism to numbers, and that creating numbers in such a way of a, of a fractal produced uh, kind of spiritual architecture. So this is, relates to aesthetics of the architecture. Fractal architecture deals with the complex dynamic system that is a building. So most of our buildings nowadays are rigid. They're unchanging. They're buildings that do not adapt to the environment. And that is a problem because we don't have a static environment. Our environment constantly changes. Our environment constantly changes. And it changes, like I said, in a, what seems unpredictable, but chaos theory tries to put order and probability to that. So one of the examples of something that might seem uh, that you would expect to be chaotic is if you ever done an experiment where you flip a coin numerous amount of times, you would expect that to be random. It, the, even though there's only two possibilities that the coin can land on, there's different amount of inscrutable variables that go into the flipping of that. So example, position of on the hand, velocity of it, the uh, rotation of it, uh, factors in things like Coriolis effect, uh, atmospheric effect, moisture effect on it. All those things are variables in that system. So even though there's two outcomes to the coin, there still is innumerable amount of variables that go into the flipping of the coin. Now, if that were true and it were random and the variables were too many to, for there to be a pattern, when you flip the coin, you would expect, and you would graph it, you would expect random curves everywhere. When you do the coin flip test, you always end up with a bell curve. There's a reason for this. And the reason you get the bell curve of probability is because fractals and fractals intrinsic in nature and chaos theory. And this is because what seem, is seemingly chaotic to us, if you run that innumerable amount of times over the course and period of time, it starts to become a repeating pattern. So our climate, for example, is something that is a repeating pattern. 
What we're doing to the environment right now isn't anything exactly new. During the Permian mass extinction 250 million years ago, there was a large amount of carbon dioxide stored in what's called the uh, Siberian traps. So took up an area of Siberia, and this is from the Carboniferous period because there was plants that were unable to have termites be able to stomach and digest them. So the plants died and created this mud, and there was a large amount of carbon dioxide that was later released over the course of a million years when the Siberian traps opened up, which is a large volcanic system that opened up about the whole size of Siberia. So think about the size of Siberia and think of an entire volcanic system that opened up and did that. So over the course of a million years, it burned all the carbon dioxide that was stored from fossil fuels, just like what we're doing. So this isn't a new process that happens to the environment. It's a repeated process. If you look at it on a large scale and you run something as complex as the entire Earth's ecosystems, the entire Earth's processes in the natural world and the amount of inscrutable variables that are within that, if you run that infinitely for an amount of time, those patterns will all be completely repeated. And the, per the reason is because chaos theory deals with understanding that there is actually order to what's seemingly disorder. But just because there's an amount of variables doesn't mean anything. So if I had, let's say I had a thousand dice and each dice had a thousand numbers on it and I, and I rolled it, you might think if I rolled that thousand times or so, you're not gonna, it's gonna be random. You're not gonna seemingly see any sort of order within it because the amount of variables that go into different velocities and vect um, vectors that go when you throw the dice, you might think, that was too many variables to be able to calculate. Well, if you ran that over the course of a million years, you just kept having those dice roll over and over again, the variables would be exhausted and a pattern would emerge from what is seemingly non-complex uh, or, or non-chaotic. Uh, so architecture isn't, this isn't new to architecture as far as the buildings go. And the way a lot of modern architecture will start moving forward is by looking at moving, changing buildings. There's an interesting building that you could do a case study of, and it's a building that's reactive to the environment. So it uses a primitive version of what I'm talking about in fractal theory, and is able to change the house orientation based upon where the sun is. So the walls are able to slide in and out, the windows. So if you're getting sun in a certain area during this time of day, you can that window can slide and a wall can slide in the way. So that is an example of something that is reactive to the environment, something that changes. And it uses advanced computers to be able to predict kind of what the environment's going to do. So rain patterns, rain averages, wind patterns, wind averages are all complex dynamic systems that are taken into consideration when designing one of these dynamic buildings. So, if you want to hear more about how fractal architecture works, uh, it's not something I could easily describe in like a half hour. So if you're interested in more, I have a podcast called the Fractal Exploratorium. And this is a bi-weekly podcast that I do. It's about 45 minutes and it can be found on SoundCloud. Uh, I, I'm gonna have, I don't have it yet because I just kind of started it, but uh, it's gonna be found on Facebook, SoundCloud, uh, the Fractal Exploratorium. So if you're interested in more of this, I have a few uh, up, and I talk about this in more detail and more episodes. So there'll be many episodes. I mean, I could foresee there being 
uh, unlimited amount of episodes to talk about fractal theory because there's just so much complexity there. And I, I try hard to fit it into like a half hour segment, but it really doesn't do it much justice. There's really much more into it. And if you want to go home and research fractals and chaos theory, there's a ton more and there's a ton more videos of people that explain it way better than I do. So definitely something to check out. Also, The Garbage Warrior is the documentary about the Earthships. So if you want to go and learn a lot about the Earthships from the actual creator himself and what he went through to get these things correct, uh, um, corrected and fitting with the code and how he had to go legislative battle, it's a really interesting documentary. It's about an hour and a half. You can find it on YouTube for free. So definitely something to check out. Also, another thing is you can rent these houses, about 150 a night. But if you have a group of people, because these houses aren't just one room, they're multiple rooms, and you can actually go and see radical sustainable houses for yourself and actually see how they operate. So if you're still kind of skeptical about it, oh, I don't know if these systems really work, I really urge you to go and check one of these houses out. It's in Taos, New Mexico, so it's about a 10-hour drive, but beautiful drive, uh, beautiful scenery, and it's a really fantastic place. You would really enjoy staying there. And that's also a really great case study, and it's a really great first-person experience with kind of how these systems work. Uh, witness it firsthand for yourself and see if maybe I want to use some of these systems in my house. Maybe it's really nice to use. So as well as renting, they also have uh, internships there where you actually go through a month of building one of these houses. So not only do you live in one of the single units, of these because they have single units that people live in with just a bed, a kitchen, uh, bathroom, basic, bare essentials. You can actually go and live in one of these things for an entire month and build one from start to finish. So that is actually an extraordinary experience. The internship is free. Uh, you could also do a school program which has classrooms. That's a little bit more, that's on the pricey side, but still a really cool experience to do something like the internship and actually see one of these houses be built from start to finish. So that is something I definitely urge you to check out. And when you guys are doing your city projects, kind of take into account the different sorts of ideas there are out there and improve upon them. Because there's great ideas that aren't perfect like this that can be vastly improved upon. And it's by people who are open-minded who take these kind of classes like you guys that are able to think of radical ideas that haven't yet been thought of or haven't yet been fought enough um, fought hard enough to get implemented. So definitely something I urge you guys to do. Also, do you guys, um, you do the, pitch you have the pitch contest still? That's coming up. <clears throat> so that I would like you to mention how you took advantage of opportunities to go out and speak and to t do the pitch contest as you develop your skills. Because obviously, wouldn't you agree that his public speaking skills are quite refined? Yes, much more than mine. So, yeah, the um, pitch contest is something to definitely take advantage of. It is a really cool experience. And I don't know if it's, does it offer, it doesn't offer money still, does it? Well, the one that's <laughs> next week, you, the deadline was actually the 19th. That one you can win up to $500, I think. Oh, way more than mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, it is even the opportunity to win money. And the crazy thing is, is you go and view these, um, it's not that insane. Anyone can really get up there and do one of these pitch contests. So I really urge you, if there's something you really are passionate about, anything, just anything that you're super passionate about. I mean, ours was a pitch contest about businesses, and people went up there and talked about veganism, and people really love to hear that just because 
It's just a medium to express something you're passionate about. Uh, if you love gardening, if you love almost, almost pretty much anything, if there's something you just are extremely passionate about, go up there. You don't even have to write anything. Just go up there and just talk about what you like to talk about. And the pitch contest, uh, is it still a night PBCC you call it? Or? Um, yeah, Ignite. Or, um, or no, we actually changed it to Just Imagine. And that's what we okay. now have the name of this project, Just Imagine. Is it still the same format, though? Mm-hmm. Five minutes. Okay. So, yeah, and it's great to really kind of try to refine your ideas because you, you got to condense what is a big idea you're passionate about into a five-minute, quick, just, you know, shoot-and-go type of presentation where you're just going through your slides because ours, it was like 20 in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're just going through your slides really quick, and it might seem like kind of a rushed experience, but it's actually a rather gratifying experience and can help you kind of condense and kind of accurately pinpoint what you're passionate about and the ideas that you're passionate about. So, definitely an opportunity. Uh, it's offered, you guys offer it here. Mm-hmm. You have to sign up for it, or um, I forget. Yes, the one, well, the one that we're doing internally, we're actually, you get an opportunity to do one within this class. So, it's kind of a low key. I do invite a few other professors if they have students that want to join in and do it. They, usually, if they do, there's one or two other people. It's mainly this class that does it. So, again, it, it gives you an opportunity to do just what DJ mentioned. But in addition, those same skills are needed in your profession that you go into. You have to pitch ideas to your boss. You have to pitch ideas to your coworker. And now you have this opportunity to learn what is, what are the skills that I need to learn if I am a good pitcher. Yeah, and if you pitch to your company, it can even help you get a raise. So. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> that's a, that's a if, if anything else, that'll at least get you that. So. Well, or, or it might get you your spouse. You could pitch the idea <laughs> of them marrying you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so um, check all those things out. Uh, also, since none of you have been to Taliesin West, go to Taliesin West. It's beautiful, and it's absolutely fantastic. You can take a tour for free, or um, I think they're free. I can't remember. I think there's a basic tour for free where you just walk around. But definitely take the guided tour because what they tell you is absolutely amazing and a really cool type of architecture. And again, Fractal Exploratorium is uh, my shameless self-plug, so go check it out. (laughs) Yeah, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uh, we'll be on Facebook. Well, actually, I already posted them on Facebook, but yeah, there will be a Facebook page for it too. Let's tell them about your project. Oh, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I didn't even get to that this time. Yeah, what time is it? It is 25 hours. Yeah, I didn't really want to go over time. So yeah. I was like, oh, the time's running low. So uh, this is actually what I did for my Sustainable Cities project in this uh, class that I took. So this uses uh, fractal geometry in a third dimension phase space. So this was kind of before I developed fourth dimensional phase space architecture. So this is a multi-purpose mixed-use, mixed-income building. And... This building is a work area, living area, slash type of YMCA type area that has basketball, uh, sports, any sort of uh, swimming, all that sort of recreational activity is kind of packed into that area. And the living area is flanked by on the sides. You don't see it because I don't have it in there, but flanked is greenhouses. So this is east-west uh, facing. So right now it's actually uh, oriented kind of how it would be, east-west. 
And what this does is it uses the greenhouse to protect the living area as well as working area from uh, heats in Arizona. So this was designed to be in Arizona. Is, are the cities still based in Arizona? Yes. Yeah. In fact, what we're doing right now is 32nd Street. So we've really narrowed it down to this corridor. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's different. But um, <laughs> e either way, there, there are empty lots for this kind of stuff. Um, could, could be built in this sort of corridor. And yeah, the purpose of it is to use passive solar heating and cooling, just like the airship uses, to be able to heat and cool itself. So it uses basic passive heating and cooling systems, as well as the whole idea of a mixed income, mixed use area. And this uh, takes away the kind of transportation costs. It takes to go to work, or I know some people don't, they don't want to live right next to their work, but uh, this contains multiple facilities and greenhouses, as well as green light areas. So the little terraces you see off of it would be large green areas. So it kind of imagine the scale of this building being that of a skyscraper for the tall part. So it's not a small building design, but it uses all the things that we learned kind of in this class and as well as looking into earthship architecture to kind of drive the, uh, the inner working systems of it. So uh, yeah, it goes well with the, the fractal aspect of it, but since we were running low on time, I didn't really get too much to it. But that's basically the premise behind why I brought that. It's kind of an example of how you can turn some of the things you learn in this class or some of the things you might have learned from earth shipping and put it into kind of your green projects that you're going to be doing at the end of the year. So passive systems are definitely something that would be relatively useful. And whoever in your group is assigned to doing the green building, look at passive waste, just... Simple stuff. Some of our buildings are, are poorly designed in Arizona simply because they just didn't rotate it. They didn't have to draw the lines any different. They just had to rotate the plan to the building. So think about some easy fixes like that. You're just rotating the windows away from the east-west side. It's that easy. So that was it. Thank you, guys. All right.